you have a Bible, go ahead and take that out. We'll open up to Ephesians and we'll continue in our study of the book of Ephesians. Bring you up to speed. We had communion last week, so we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. And we got a handout there. You can follow along today. And we're going to finish chapter 1 of Ephesians. We talked about why we chose the book of Ephesians. We're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians because it was a letter that Paul wrote and he intended it to be read all at one time. So there's a context, there's an argument, there's themes that flow throughout. They all go together. And so we're going to study the whole book of Ephesians so we can get the full benefit of what Paul was trying to communicate to the saints of that church that he had planted there in Ephesus and understand it and glean it for all of its worth. So we're going to look at the whole book. And already we've looked at verses 1 through 15. The highlight was in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, where Paul reminds Christians that you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And it started the moment you got saved. When you became a Christian, you've been blessed. There are great resources and treasures that belong to you, Christian. Now it's just a matter of appropriating those treasures uh, that belong to you in Christ. The greatest blessing we've been blessed with was verses 4 through 14, and that was salvation. We are secure in Christ in our salvation with Him. That is an awesome thing, and that's what verses 4 through 14 was about. And then we talked about two weeks ago, verses 15 through 23. That was a prayer. Paul is overwhelmed at this time. By the way, I didn't say this last time, but uh, verses 15 through 23 is one of the longest verses in the New Testament. I mean, one of the longest sentences, I should say, in the Greek text. It's just one long running sentence. It's a prayer of God as he pours his heart out. And that's what 15 through 23 is. It's a prayer of Paul. And so we're going to look at this prayer. We looked at part one last time. There are three things that Paul prays for in this prayer. And so we want to look at the, uh, we looked at the first thing that he prayed for. We're going to look at the last two things he prays for on behalf of other Christians in this prayer. But before we do, another good reminder about the book of Ephesians to understand it to the fullness and to appreciate the way Paul wrote it. In the first three chapters of this book, Paul is giving uh, spiritual and theological truth first. He's addressing our mind. He's giving us concepts for the first three chapters. Then in the last three chapters, four through six, uh, he's giving us commands to live by. So basically in the first three chapters, he's saying, here's who you are in Christ. Here's what is true about a Christian. Here's what is true about Christ. And then the last three chapters, he says, in light of these truths, now live like it. So you need to understand that. So the first three chapters, Paul is addressing our mind, and then in the last three chapters, he's addressing our duty and our practice and our habits of Christian behavior. And that would explain why in the first three chapters, there are almost no commands or imperatives in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Yet in the last three chapters of Ephesians, there's over 60 commands, or what are called imperatives. But we can't do what we're supposed to do until we know what we're supposed to do, right? We have to know what the expectations and the truths are first. And so that's what Paul is setting out to do. He wants the Christians to know who they are in Christ, what their resources are, how God has equipped them through salvation and a personal relationship. And he just goes on and on for three chapters. And then once you fully understand that, then you can live the fullness of the Christian life. So we've got to have prerequisite knowledge first. Then we can live to the fullness of what God expects. So that's the way uh, the book of Ephesians is laid out. First there's doctrine, then there's duty. First it's who you are in Christ, and then it's how to live for Christ in the last part of the book. So let's go ahead and look at I want to read that wonderful prayer of Paul, 15 through 23. If you struggle in your prayer life and sometimes you don't know how to pray or what to pray for, one of the best ways is just to go to Scripture, find somebody in Scripture like Jesus or one of the apostles or a great saint, and look at one of their prayers. How did they pray? Let's listen to how Paul frequently prayed as a pastor and as a Christian. 
He says in verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. An awesome prayer. And I broke the prayer up into three things. Three things that Paul prays for on behalf of uh, the people in the church of Ephesus. And this is how we should pray. We should pray this way on behalf of people. He prays first, we said in verse 17 last time, that Paul prayed that these Christians would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know God more and know better. So his prayer was that they would grow continually in their knowledge of who God was, and we talked about that. That is the essence of eternal life, knowing God the Father, who he really is, and knowing Jesus Christ, who he really is. So that was the exhortation, and he prayed very specifically that they would have wisdom on their part, that spiritual discernment, and he also prayed that God would give them revelation, or that God literally would, apocalypsis, unveil things for them. So God prayed for them to have discernment, to be able to discern and understand the things that God unveiled on their behalf. So that was the command. That's how we're supposed to pray for people, for spiritual discernment so they can grow in their relationship with God. Here's the question, and here's the challenge for us. In the last two weeks, if you were here two weeks ago and you heard this, how many people have you prayed for like this in the last two weeks? Just think about it in your own heart. I have to examine and convict my own heart. God, is this typical of my prayer life? In the last two weeks, have I prayed for saints in this church, people I know, Asking that they would grow in their knowledge of God through wisdom and insight and revelation. Have you prayed for your spouse, if you're married, in the last two weeks, uh, that God, through the Holy Spirit, would help them know God more and more each day? Because that's what He commanded us to do. That's how He prayed. That's what we should be doing. If you have children, did you pray for your children in the last two weeks, that they would grow in their understanding and knowledge of who God is, so that they can grow in their relationship with God? Parents, that's the greatest prayer you can pray on behalf of your children, that they would continue to grow in their wisdom and knowledge of who their Creator is. And if you pray that way, you are praying according to the will of God. And when you pray according to the will of God, God answers those prayers. Did you know that? That is a promise from Scripture. Praying for your children. Praying for your spouse. Have you prayed on your own behalf? I tried to. God, give me a spirit of wisdom and knowledge so I can know you more. So just an exhortation to continue in your prayer life, to make that a regular part of your life praying for friends and people all around you so that they can grow more and more in the knowledge of who God really is. That's the first prayer. Then let's go ahead and look at the second two things that Paul prays for. And that's on your handout there. What else did he pray for? Well, Paul says in verse 18, and I'm reading out of the New American Standard, And I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Again, that's spiritual understanding so that you will have spiritual discernment. So that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That is the second thing that Paul prayed for on behalf of these Christians. 
And Roman numeral number two is, we need to grow in the knowledge of our mission. That's what Paul was praying for. People need, Christians need to know their mission. And letter A and letter B, their mission in this life is the blank. Christians need to know their mission in this life. And Christians also need to know their mission in the next life. And Paul addresses both of those here. The key word is in verse 18. Where Paul says, I pray that, that you will have spiritual discernment or that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know that you know you will know what? What is the hope of his calling? That word calling is very specific. It means something very specific in Paul's mind. Calling is used consistently throughout the New Testament in reference to believers regarding what their vocation is in this life by God's design. In other words, why did God save you? This answers the question, why am I here? What is my purpose here on life? Why does God have me here? What am I supposed to accomplish all the days of my life that I am here on earth until I die or until Jesus returns? Why am I here? This is one of the ultimate questions of reality that people the world over are trying to answer for themselves. And most people get very frustrated trying to find the answer and get fulfilled and really believing they have the answer to that question. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my calling here on planet earth? Am I the end result of a long process of random evolution? And I'm just an animal. And then after this life, poof, there's nothing. Why am I here? It's not just unbelievers that struggle with that question. What is the purpose of life and why am I here? Christians struggle with this. Why am I here? Why do you have me here, God? What do you want me to do? What am I supposed to accomplish? How can I have fulfillment in, in this life? That's what this verse is referring to. It's answering those questions. One of the most important, ultimate questions of reality. Why am I here? What is your calling? So that's what I mean by... In this life, why am I here? And it's where you are, it starts right now. This, your calling, every Christian has been called by God. Every Christian has a calling in this life. That's what this word means. In the New Testament, in Paul's day, the Greek word for calling here referred to a, a formal summons by a king to be commissioned to duty or referred literally to your vocation in life. What you spent the rest of your life doing in terms of your training, your experience, your desires. And you were accountable for it. So I'd ask you, what is your calling, Christian, in this life? What has God called you to do? And it doesn't matter how old you are if you're a Christian. Whether you're in middle school, high school, college. Whether you're single, married, divorced, a widow, a widower. If you are a Christian, you have a calling in your life by God. The question is, are you fulfilling that calling to even know what that calling is? And that's what Paul is praying on their behalf, that they will know their calling because Paul knew that people would struggle with this issue. I struggle with this issue. I've struggled with this issue my whole life. I struggled with this issue probably most when I was in college because college is a transitional time of your life, discovering your own identity and your independence. And that's when the question really kicks in is, how am I supposed to spend the rest of my life? What am I supposed to major in in college? What is, how am I to be used and spend my time the rest of my life? What does God want for my life? So that's a question that many college students really struggle with. People commit suicide over this issue and not getting it resolved. That's how serious it is. So Paul is praying on their behalf. My prayer for you saints is that you will know the hope of God's calling in your life. No matter what your state in life is. And the temptation is to look ahead five years from now, isn't it? Or what do I want to be doing 10 years from now or 15 years from now or 20 years from now? But that isn't reality. We might not be here tomorrow. The emphasis here from God's point of view is... 
What is your calling right now? What does God want you to do right now? He has a calling for you. Are you fulfilling it? Are you fulfilling the mandate, mission, and vocation God has called you to, to fulfill as a Christian starting right now, no matter where you are in life, no matter how old you are? Not thinking about five or ten years from now. But we need to be a good steward of the things right now. Now, you can answer that very specifically in your own life in terms of your personal vocation. Okay, do I want to be a teacher? Uh, do I want to get married? Do I want to have children? Do I want to be a parent? Uh, what do I want to do for a living? So all these questions enter into it, and you have to wrestle with God and ask Him for wisdom, and He will help you find the answer to those questions. Now, those are very specific ones, but the Bible does give us general answers to questions that are true regarding every Christian and their calling. And those are one, two, three, and 4 that I put down in your handout there. This is the starting point. If you're a Christian here today, and I were to ask you, what is your calling? Here's a minimum of four answers that you could say. Whether they're true in your life or not, it doesn't matter. It's, these are what the Bible say are true for all, every Christian. This is part of our calling in this life as long as we live on planet Earth. Point number one, God calls us to be saved. And that's where our calling begins as a Christian. He saves you at a certain point of time, and then he wants to use you as an instrument and a vessel all of your living days in life in a very specific way. So it starts with salvation, God's will and his calling in your life is that you would be saved and know him and be a Christian. That's where your calling and vocation for Christ begins. And then there's number two. God calls every Christian to be productive. And I, want to, I do want you to flip to Matthew 28 if you have your Bible because I want you to look at this. Just an amazing passage where, where Jesus is giving a parable exhorting every Christian to be mindful of their calling in life, their responsibility before God, of the stewardship they have of every breath they take and every moment they live on planet Earth as a steward of, of God and of life from a Christian point of view. Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. This is Jesus at the end of his life. He's about to leave. He's going to be crucified, die, but he is going to come back and return again someday. And so that's the context of this parable. And someday he's going to return, but right now he's leaving for a while. So he's answering the question, what do I want you disciples to be occupied with your time doing until I return? What should we be doing until God returns? How do we spend our time? What is our calling on earth until God returns or until we die and go to be with him? Here's the parable to answer that question. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. That's Jesus. He's about to leave to heaven for a while until he comes back. Who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So he calls those disciples that are his and he gives them possessions. He gives them responsibilities. He gives them gifts. He gives them stewardships. Every one of us has those as a gift from God. Every person in this room has been given gifts by God we are responsible stewards of. Whether it's time, possession, money, gifts, opportunities. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus entrusts all of us with possessions to them. They belong to him, so we are merely stewards of those things. Verse 15. And to one he gave five talents or other translation have different words, five dollars or whatever it is. It's just representative. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his own ability. And then he went on his journey. He left. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and, gave, and gained five more talents. So he invested his talents and got a return. That was wise. But he who received, oh, I'm sorry, verse 17, in the same manner the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received one talent went away, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money in the ground. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came back and settled accounts with them. 
And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. I have gained five more talents. Verse 21. Now this is Jesus talking to the believer when he has returned now. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave or servant. You were faithful with a few things. You were a good steward. I put you in charge of. Me- I will put you in charge of many things. You were faithful with a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave or servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice one had five talents, one had two, and they got the same reward. They were both commended in an identical manner. Verse 24. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a shrewd or hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. So this person's operating out of fear. And they are giving excuses as to why they're not doing things. They're giving excuses as to why they're not productive. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Here it is. You gave me one, you get one back. Verse 26, but his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put in my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him, give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. That's a frightening parable. But Jesus' point is, he's telling us as disciples, we are accountable and responsible as stewards of what he has entrusted us to do and to be in this life and with respect to our calling. So are you being faithful with your calling? Am I being faithful with my calling? As a parent, in your job, in your vocation, as a Christian, in serving, in all those areas, we have to give God an accounting for our calling. So God wants us to be productive in this life. What, what, how else can we be faithful in our calling? Number three, God calls every Christian to be accountable. Every Christian needs to be accountable. And Hebrews 10, I put there, is in the context of the church body. Every Christian, by God's design, is supposed to be involved and plugged into a local church because that is God's requirement and God's design. That's how you grow. That's how you grow as an individual, and that's how you help others grow. The church body, we are interdependent and interrelated and dependent upon one another. We all need each other in the local church. This is basic to our calling. If you're a Christian and you are not regularly involved or a part of a local church, you are a disobedient Christian and you are an unhealthy Christian and your growth is going to be stifled. So we need to be involved. And that's Hebrews. Listen to the exhortation here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds as we gather together. That's what we're supposed to be doing on Sundays. Stimulating one another to love and good deeds and being encouraged in spiritual growth and pursuing a relationship with God with one another. Holding each other accountable. That's the idea. Verse 25. But we shouldn't be forsaking our own assembling together. Because the reason he said that is because there were people, Christians, professing Christians in his day, who were ditching church. They weren't going to church. They weren't going to Bible study. They were staying home. They were being aloof. They were being distant. They were staying away from everybody. They were missing an action. And they called themselves Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the body of Christ. A body has many members. 
And some of our body parts aren't showing up. How can a body walk if it doesn't have feet or a leg? Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Some got in the habit of ditching church. That's what he's saying. But rather we should be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As time goes by, all the more urgent it is to be a part of the body of Christ and to be involved and to be accountable. My question to you, who are you accountable to in your life? Do you have anybody that's accountable to you, that you are accountable to in your life? Whether it's a family member, whether it's somebody in the church that you are accountable to. If, if you can't answer uh, with the positive on that question, you are in a very susceptible, scary position. We need accountability in our life. That's basic to God's calling for the Christians so that they can grow. And then finally, number four, part of our calling as Christians is that, number four, God calls us to serve Him. Every Christian is called to serve in some capacity in their local church. And we're going to talk, when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to talk more specifically and at length about this. Primarily, we serve through the gifts that God has given us, and God has given different gifts to different people. God has, and then Paul and the New Testament authors list many of those gifts. Uh, giving is a gift. Serving is a gift. Teaching is a gift. And we're all supposed to contribute with the gift that we have been given so that the local church can grow. That's basic. Every Christian needs to be serving or using their gift somewhere in the local church. First Peter 4. Peter the Apostle reminds us and says this to every Christian. As each one has received a special gift, saying, as every Christian has received a special gift from God, employ it or use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You are a steward of what God has given you in terms of service. You need to use it accordingly and serve the local church. So what is your gift? How are you being faithful? How are you being accountable? How are you being productive? I think about single people. Uh, when I was, This is just what I noticed when I was single. Uh, I didn't appreciate this, but one of the greatest gifts I had to offer and use and serve with when I was single was time. I, but I didn't realize it at the time. So if you're single, you have a commodity that, man, I really cherish. Once I got married and then had one child, and oh, no, I had four children. Whoa, there went the gift of time. Um, so if you're single, you have that as a unique gift to give uh, in service to the local church. That is part of your calling. Um, so God calls us. And so this is what Paul is praying for, that Christians will understand their calling in this life, how God wants to use them in the maximum capacity so that they can be used by him, and this is part of it. This is basic, that we will be saved, productive, accountable, serving him. So that's our calling in this life. Then, Paul also, so go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul also addresses that he's praying on behalf of these Christians that they will know their calling in the next life, because our calling and what we do in this life directly affects what we're going to be doing in the next life. Did you know that? How we live in this life affects how we will live in eternity up in heaven. Have you ever asked, boy, what are we going to be doing in heaven for all eternity? Wow, I can't imagine. How boring. On and on and on and on and on and forever and ever and ever and ever. What could we possibly be doing up there? That's a great question. But part of the answer is depends on what we're doing in this life and how we're spending our calling in this life will determine how we're spending eternity and what our calling is in the next life. Uh, but let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. To see this, our calling... In the next life, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you'll have discernment, in order that you may know what is the hope of your calling in this life, your vocation for God, and also what are the riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints. Now, the word inheritance refers to the next life. The word inheritance was also used in verse 11. Anytime that word is used in the New Testament, it's catapulting us into the future, after death, into the next life, our inheritance. 
So Paul wants us to understand what the inheritance is that we get to be a part of in the next life because that affects our calling. It's part of our calling. Now in verse 11, we were promised because we're Christians and because we are saved, when we die and go to be with Christ, we're going to get an inheritance, a gift from God. Many inheritances, many gifts we're going to get from God the Father in the next life. Resurrection, a sinless body, being with Christ, sitting on His throne, ruling over the angels, on and on it goes. The inheritance that we are going to get in the next life, the Christian, is just unbelievable. So we are going to receive an inheritance in the next life. If you know someone who is a Christian and has already died, they have received much of that inheritance. And they are enjoying that inheritance right now. It's a glorious thing. So we will receive an inheritance when we die, but... In verse 18, this inheritance is referring to something else. This verse is saying that God is going to get an inheritance someday in the future. And other verses in the New Testament talk about this. What is this? It's His inheritance. It's God's inheritance. Well, what is it? His inheritance? It's His inheritance in the saints. What that's saying is, who are the saints? We are. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a holy one. Every Christian is somebody who is set apart by God to be used by God for God. That's what saint means. So what this is saying is, in the future, God is going to receive an inheritance, and the inheritance is going to be in His saints, the glory of His saints, the riches of the glory in His saints. What that's saying is that the culmination of all of world history is that God the Father and Jesus Christ are going to receive a beautiful, precious gift of an inheritance. And what is that? It is, for Jesus Christ, He is called the husband or the head of the church. And in the next life, someday there's going to be a supernatural heavenly wedding. And Jesus is going to be the groom of that wedding. He's half of the wedding party. And Jesus is going to be married to who? To the church, to all the saints of all time, in a glorified manner. Corporately, you're going to be presented as a beautiful bride to the Lord Jesus Christ in a glorious wedding in the next life. So what is the inheritance that Jesus and God the Father are going to receive in the next life? It is the saints. It is us. We are God's inheritance. That's an amazing concept, but that's what he says. So go on to letter B there. In the next life, what will we do in heaven? Number one, we will get an inheritance from God. I talked about that. Number two, we are God's inheritance because that's what this verse is telling us. And what this means is that letter A, God owns us. Because we are his inheritance, he owns us. He claimed ownership on us, not just in this life, but in eternity past. We already talked about that. He redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us. And we weren't worth much, were we? But he paid the highest price to buy us who weren't worth much so that he can inherit us in the future after we have been refined and perfected. He saw that we could be salvageable because of the work of Christ. So the fact that we are in his inheritance means God owns us. Our body is not our own. Our life is not our own. He owns us because he purchased us with Christ's blood. And then letter B, because he owns us, he considers us precious. God considers believers precious. Psalm 116, verse 15, a beautiful verse. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Do you know when a believer dies, that is precious to God. God takes note of that when one of His own dies. We are precious. Have you ever heard somebody say, some Christian, rant and raven, and say that, oh, you ain't worth nothing. Or Many times I hear this verse misquoted or quoted. Isaiah 64, where it says, uh, filthy rags, it makes reference to filthy rags. And I've heard pastors and preachers and Bible teachers point their finger at Christians and say, you're nothing but filthy rags. Or, I'm nothing but filthy rags. Well, they're taking that verse out of context. Is a Christian considered filthy rags by God Almighty who has saved them and purchased them? No. 
We are precious. We are His inheritance. Isaiah 64, verse 6 does refer to filthy rags, but what is filthy rags? The believer? It says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. In other words, things we're trying to do to work our way to heaven and please God is what's filthy rags. It is absolutely worthless. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn salvation. Only the work of Christ earns salvation. But that verse doesn't say that people are filthy rags and worthless. That verse isn't saying that Christians are worthless and filthy rags. We are precious. We are priceless. God owns us. He is looking forward to inheriting us. And we are going to be His possession for all of eternity. That is unthinkable because God is totally self-sufficient. God needs nothing. And He just decided for whatever reason at some point in eternity past to create the human race that He knew would be sinful and then redeem that sinful race so that He could perfect that sinful race through Christ so that someday He can inherit us as His own personal possession for all eternity. I don't understand that, but it blows my mind away. But that's what this verse is talking about. That is a part of our calling. And Paul is praying, Christian, don't you understand your calling in this life? And even greater, your calling in the next life? That you're going to be God's precious possession for all eternity? Christian, if you would only understand that, then you would be living in a different way to maximize your life for Christ in service to Him. That's what Paul is praying that we would know our calling. Well, let's go on. So that is our mission. So as you continue your prayer life, pray for others. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your children. Pray for people you know. Pray for me, that my eyes would be opened so I would have spiritual understanding and discernment to understand my mission in life, to understand fully my calling, my vocation in this life and in the next so that I can be maximized by God. Let's go on to point number three. Paul prays that we need to grow in the knowledge of our might, of our power, We have power. If you're a Christian, you have resident power within you. Did you know that today? You have amazing power at your disposal. You have amazing power actually living inside of you, and he's going to address that. So that's the third part of his prayer. Uh, Look at verse 19. And this is a continuation of this prayer, praying that we would know something. The third thing that Paul wants us to know as he's praying is he says, verse 19, that we would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power. So God is praying that, Christian, I wish you would understand and discern and really know and apply God's great power. And this is awesome power. First of all, the word there in verse 19 is dunamis, where the English word dynamite came from. Just power, strong, strength, might, power. Not only is it great power, it is awesome power because it's God's power. It's His power. This is God's power. This is eternal power. This is sovereign power. The greatest power in the universe. It's surpassing power. He's just heaping up the adjectives here. The surpassing greatness of God's power. Do you understand and believe God's power? There's a lot of Christians who walk around uh, defeated, self-defeated, because they think they can't overcome certain things in their life. Uh, A certain habitual sin or a certain struggle that they have and saying, oh, I can't do it. Oh, I I need this, but I can't, and so on and so forth. Uh, When Paul is saying, no, you need to understand, Christian, the power that is at your disposal through God himself. His power. That's what Paul is praying for. You have access to the greatest power in the world. He goes on at the end of verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of His power? Toward us who believe. Toward us who believe. So this power is at our disposal, the power of God. The Creator is at our disposal. That's an amazing concept. How is that possible? Well, I want to address that in some of the details he gives here. I want to talk about this power that is at our disposal. First of all, letter A, this is personal power. It's not just God's possession. He's literally letting us have His power as well. It is personal. It is given to the Christian. 
The emphasis there, he says, it is for us who believe. Who has access to God's almighty, eternal, supernatural power? The Christian. To us who believe. People who are not Christians don't have access to this power, but we do. If you're a Christian, you have access to this great, unbelievable, supernatural power. It's a personal power towards us who believe. B, it is supernatural power. By the way, in verse 19... He's praying that the Christians will understand their power that they have because they have a relationship with Christ. And then verses 20 through 23 is just an explanation of what that power is. He's defining the nature of that power. What kind of power? Well, here's all the components and things that are true about this supernatural power. So that's what 20 through 23 is, a definition of this power that is at our disposal. First of all, it is personal power. It is for us to use. It is at our disposal. B, it's a supernatural power. It's a power that the world doesn't even know about. It's greater than atomic power and nuclear power. It's supernatural power. It's power that he says, uh, what about this power? He says, um, verse 20, this power which God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is the same kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was crucified, drained of all of his blood, buried in a tomb, was dead for three days, and he was brought back to life. What kind of power can bring a dead man back to life after three days? No human power. It is only supernatural power that can do that. That is the power that is at our disposal. Supernatural, heavenly power from God for the Christian. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He goes on to tell us more about this power. Because there's different kinds of supernatural power. Did you know that? The devil has supernatural power, doesn't he? So he wants to explain it even more. It's not just supernatural power. It's even greater. Well, what about the supernatural power? Well, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those words, rule, authority, power, dominion. Many times Paul used those nouns or those words to describe demonic power, satanic power. But it was supernatural power. Satan has great power, amazing power, frightening power. But Paul encourages the Christian and ensures them the power that we have in Christ is even greater than satanic, evil, demonic power. So it's a supernatural power, but it is a supreme power. That's letter C. It is supreme power. It is the greatest kind of supernatural power. It's power that's greater than satanic power. Some people misunderstand uh, God and the devil, and they think that God is the good guy, the devil's the white guy, and they're on an equal... uh, the devil's the bad guy, and they're on an equal par, and they have equal power, and they're in this constant eternal struggle. That is totally wrong. God is uncreated creator. The devil is a fallen sinful being that was created a long time ago, and Satan has absolutely no power unless it has been given to him by God Almighty who controls all power because he has supreme power. So that's what this is talking about. This is supreme power we have at our disposal. It is power that is greater than what Satan has even right now. That's amazing. Wouldn't you like to be able to know how to access some of that power? Boy, if that's mine and I can have it, I want it right now. I want to apply it to my life. Well, Paul's trying to get us to understand you can, Christian. So not only is it supreme power, but letter D, finally, it is lasting power. He goes on and says it's a power that is greater than all rule, all authority, power, dominion, uh, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is lasting power. This is eternal power. This is power that lasts beyond the grave. Who was the most powerful man in the 20th century? Uh, You could pick a few names. Uh, Stalin, Hitler, and on and on it goes. 
How much power do they have today? Zero. None. It was temporal power. It didn't last. So that's why this power is different that the Christian has at their disposal. This is lasting, ongoing, eternal power that goes beyond this life and goes beyond the grave. And that is at our disposal. Unbelievable. And then he goes on, concludes it by saying this. Uh, verse 22, And God, the Father, put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. By virtue of the fact that we are a part of the church means we have access and all rights and privileges to the supernatural power, which is His body. We are part of the body of Christ, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And I want to close with this. Flip over to chapter 3. Where does this power come from? How do we access this power? How do we get it? How do we use it in our life? Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Because Paul's going to talk about this power a couple different times throughout the epistle. And he says this. He's reminding Christians. Chapter 3, verse 20, he says, and this is kind of a prayer. Now to him, God in Christ, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Has God ever answered an amazing, unthinkable prayer in your life? Or has God ever done something that you couldn't even think of or pray about? You never could have conceived or imagined it, but God did it anyway. God does those things. He is awesome. He is amazing. God does these kind of things in our life exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could even ask or think. Well, how does He do that? According to the power that works within who? That works within us. What is that power that works within us? It was in one of our songs. We talked about the Spirit who lives in me. The moment you become a Christian, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told His disciples that when you get saved, when the church begins, the moment you become a Christian, Acts chapter 8, one, chapter 1, verse 8 says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and He will give you power. Every Christian who is truly born again has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. He came to live inside of you the moment you got saved. And inside of you, you have residential, supernatural personal, supreme, lasting power that belongs to Almighty God Himself. And we have access to that and can see God do miracles in our life by using, submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit. So primarily, we can access this power through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and also through prayer and submitting to God and He will do great things in our life. And that's what Paul's going to go on and show us for the next two chapters in Ephesians. So be encouraged, Christian, and I just want to encourage you in your prayer life for the, for the next week or so, this week, be thinking, be praying for yourself, that you will grow in your knowledge of who God is, what your vocation and calling is in this life, and are you being a faithful steward, and do you truly understand the power of God that is available and accessible that you can implement in your own life because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's my prayer for every single one of us, for me and for this church. And let's go ahead and pray to God right now and ask Him to, to open our eyes so that we can faithfully serve Him. Father, I thank You for who You are. Thank You for the opportunity to sing to You through song as we recognize that You are holy, You're awesome, You are a loving God, a gracious God, all-powerful. Thank You for reminding us through the Scriptures of these great truths. For reminding us of who Jesus is, the Savior that died on our behalf. Thank You for reminding us that we are Your precious possession. We belong to You. You own us. God, in light of that, help us to submit to you and do whatever you want us to do to be obedient to you. And also, God, open our eyes to understand how we can access supernatural Holy Spirit power in our own life so we can overcome sin, temptation in our life, and also that we can access that power to fulfill the calling you have given us in this life and also in the life to come. We thank you. We give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen.